This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Age and the American Revolution. We visit the classroom of James Madison University professor Rebecca Brannan. She debunks the myth that the founding fathers were all old men and describes how changes in perceptions of childhood led to a more child-centric family culture by the early 1800s. All right, welcome back to class. And as you know, all semester we've been talking about ideas about age and expectations about age, whether childhood is idealized or a time of work. Who gets to be an adult with that package of rights and responsibilities? Um, What does it mean to have chronological age, something like you can drive at 16, Um, but back in the earlier periods we've studied, you're not an adult until 21. What does that all mean? And we've also been talking about old age, right? Um, What people's expectations were. And as you know, I've been researching old age. So today, I want to talk a little bit about what I've been doing, but I also want to put it in the perspective of childhood, because this semester we spent a lot of time thinking about each life stage, and its expectations, but we haven't done a lot yet to try to put it together. So I thought I'd try to do that heavy lifting, and we talk about it in terms of the American Revolution. So the first thing a lot of people who haven't had this class say is, maybe they didn't even think about age at all. Maybe you're just making something up that we care about today that they didn't care about. Well, that's not true. You can read their diaries, and they talk about achieving certain ages, expecting, for instance, uh, achy bones and uh, thinning hair as they get older. Not only do they think about age, they think about generations, too. So I chose this quote. Um, It's John Adams, and he's essentially saying, I have to study politics and war. I have to be a leader in the American Revolution itself so that my sons can study mathematics and philosophy. And by that, we might understand useful arts. Mathematics, right, is both an intellectual endeavor and useful. They should study these. They should study geography, natural history, uh, navigation, in order to give their children, in order to John Adams' grandchildren, the chance to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, right? And so he's thinking generationally both about his own family, but it's also a metaphor for the United States in general, right? I have to make war so my sons can study industrial pursuits to build the nation and its wealth and status and safety so that their children can enjoy the delights of liberal learning and self-actualization. It's a beautiful metaphor, I think, for the American Revolution's hopes for the future. And it's also, right, explicitly generational. So are we the first people to think in generations or were there baby boomers who said, we're a special generation, never trust anyone over 30? They weren't the first to think about generations either. Early Americans, people living at the time of the American Revolution absolutely cared about age, right? And we've been through a recent presidential cycle, and there was a lot of conversation. How old is too old? Remember that? How old is too old? 
And I chose this quote from Vox. Right, the Septuagarians, 70 plus people. If they're not geezers, they're geezer adjacent. Should we be worried? Were you worried? As younger people, did you feel like there was an issue of what you expected of political leaders in terms of age range and representation? Mm. I mean, I guess, you know, like now, you know, everybody expects like younger candidates to come into because, you know, you feel like older candidates will have like stick with the older views and, you know, um, the country is always changing. And, you know, sometimes older people might not be up for change, so they may want to keep some of the same policies or views. So um, I want to say worry, but I feel like um, they just wouldn't have agreed, per se, um, with their views because they might not be um, want change or whatever. But that's not always true. You know, sometimes... um, People older age, you know, are willing to change as well. And there's actually a, a famous piece of literature that's written in the early 19th century, Rip Van Winkle. And you've probably heard it as a Halloween story, but if you read the, the fiction, it's about a man who was young enough at the time of the American Revolution and fell into a deep, unnatural, magical sleep and wakes up 35 years later in complete confusion about the world he finds himself in because it's out of step with all of his expectations. And it's a story about how fast the world changed. And it gets at many of the things Amaya is saying, right? So we had this whole national conversation. And some people said, well, good, vibrant democracies don't have this problem of questioning whether the representation they have is appropriate. And that's what this first tweet on the bottom is about. Then you get the aggrieved in historian response. We make fun of the gerontocracy in other countries, like the late Soviet Union. Uh, But look at how old they were. And look at how old on the eve of our past election, much of our most senior leadership, and I use senior in the sense of authoritative, Leadership was, in fact, quite senior. Of course, a lot of people say 60 is the new 40 and 80 is the new 60. We're living in a time of increasing longevity. But still, there was the question, do they look presidential? Mm -hmm. But now I'm going to ask it here. Do they look presidential. What do you think? To me, they honestly kind of like don't, to me personally, don't look, I don't see too much of a a difference other than, of course, you know, the style of the hair, you know. Right. So here we have former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden, as we're recording this. Here we have Thomas Jefferson. The one on the left is actually the, the portrait that exists of him at his oldest. Uh, the one on the right is the better known one. 
But this is how Americans think of people like Thomas Jefferson, right? Gravitas, which equals age and wrinkles. By the way, even Thomas Jefferson was insecure about whether his long life, and he lived into his 80s, whether he'd done enough, achieved enough, been important enough, fulfilled enough goals. He said this in 1800, five months before he assumed the presidency of the United States as the third president of the United States. And he says, right, I'm sitting down and I'm taking an accounting of my life, and I don't know if my country is any better because I was alive. So by the way, if you're ever feeling insecure, <laughs> so are presidents. This is taken from a life mask, which is literally an artist did the simulation on the right uh, on a computer simulation from a life mask, which is where they literally put plaster on your face and let it dry. Uh, it almost suffocated him to death, but he was sure that he was important enough that it was worth suffering to maintain his visage for posterity. And he's not the only one. Hopefully everyone recognizes this one. Who is it? George. George Washington. It's actually, if you look closely, it's the same portrait. I've got the original portrait on the left. And I've got the sort of close-up of his face on the right. Does he look young and vigorous? He looks old. Mm -hmm. So I'd suggest this is what generations of Americans have thought the founders are. Really old men who somehow, because they were old, we're virtuous, important leaders of our country. So much so that when we try to imagine them any other way, we have trouble. This is a particularly horrendous portrait, <laughs> circa 1904, a young Martha and George Washington. This uh, artist is trying to imagine. We all laughed when we saw it. Why? Her waistline, so skinny. Well, I couldn't hear Amaya. So I was uh, noticing her waistline, how it was just so thin. <laughs> like, everything at the bottom is just bigger. Yeah, the proportions aren't even right. <laughs> All of you did these great um, presentations on your research on Barbie. She kind of looks like she might topple over at any moment due to being anatomically incorrect. What about him? Does he look full of youthful... Mirth and joy. Looks like he has a baby face, but he also has gray hair, too. <laughs> so it's kind of weird. And it was the tradition to sort of powder your hair at the time, the fashion, but still. Also the breeches. Mm -hmm. If that's what fun is, <laughs> I don't think we're having any. <laughs> so... Generations of Americans have imagined it. But I'm going to tell you it's a completely distorted picture, and it's a distorted picture of what the revolution was and what it did. Nathan Loda was commissioned recently to make a portrait using that famous one 
of George Washington. And imagine George Washington as a young man. <laughs> it hangs in Farmers and Distillers in D.C. And this is the portrait. George Washington as a young man. What is your take on it? What does it feel like to look at this? Well, for me, it just begs the question of what they defined as young and young for the founding fathers. When you look back at the other picture, they're still portrayed as elderly people. They're still portrayed with their white hair and they look very stiff. And yet yes. in this one, you know, you're going back to what you would imagine maybe 20s or 30s uh, as the age where it's they don't have the white hair yet. They do look youthful and they look kind of loose and ready to go. Yeah, I like that. Loose and ready to go. And you can see the bone structure in his face. The details in the arms. No more the powdered hair. Now he's got a man bun. <laughs> it, it just brings another like perspective of how, because, you know, like Liam said, you know, kind of used to viewing him as one way. If you see him in history books uh, outside of his presidency, you know, when he was a part of the war, you know, you always seen him as this one image. So it kind of, like, like you said, kind of make you, you know, how do you define age? And, yeah. How do you define age? And also, at what point in your life do you actually have power in cer or take certain kinds of roles in society? The thing is, most of the American revolutionaries were young. Even though we remember the founding fathers, certain ones of them as old, and they were taken years after the accomplishments that they became famous for, that made this nation. Look at how young some of these were. So these are how old they were at the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. You'll notice James Madison, who our university is named for, is basically an adult baby of 25. He was especially frustrated at not reaching full adulthood by his society's expectations because although he's of the legal age of majority, he still lives on his father's plantation under his parents' thumb. He can read whatever he wants and he's widely read in ideas about government, but let's face it, he's still living with his parents and he's frustrated because he can't have an independent household. Alexander Hamilton's all of 21. Thomas Jefferson, who becomes famous for writing the Declaration of Independence, is 33 when he pens it. And Betsy Ross's not-so-withered hands make that flag. A few of them are what we might call middle-aged, but George Washington isn't an old man when he leads the Continental Army through an eight-year war. Paul Revere's 41 when he rides to warn people, the British are coming, the British are coming. Patrick Henry's not even 40 when he says, give me liberty or give me death. This is not an old man's revolution. This is a young man's revolution. There's only one old man in the bunch. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, the great-grandfather of the American Revolution. 
he likes to play up his age sometimes. Uh, After a particularly important uh, political meeting, he says, he looks at the sun ornament on a chair and says, "I, I used to wonder whether this was a rising sun or a setting sun, but now I am reassured this is the rising sun of America. So we have this vision that the American Revolution is this stately process, I think, because we all we look at is images of people who seem stately. But that's not who they actually were. So this is a group of history majors and medical humanities minors. How many of you have studied a revolution other than the American Revolution? Were those revolutions mostly senior citizens? We know about revolutions. Who leads them and who supports them? <laughs> Emma, you sort of think you get through? Uh, younger people in general. Younger people. And that the Iranian Revolution, the 20th century revolution, people have often pointed to how young Iranian society was. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Maybe our revolution's not so different. Maybe we are misunderstanding how social change happens and how our nation was actually founded. So I ask you, what would the founders really think? And the answer is they're young. This is a young person's revolution with some middle-aged people along for the ride. And I'm going to tell you that actually they were living through a time when there was an incredible burgeoning population of children who were becoming young adults. At the very time, the revolution breaks out. So we're going to detour for a moment because I want to show you, I promise there's a point here, I want to show you a little bit more about childhood at the time. Because it's changing through the 18th century, people's expectations. And ideas about old age are changing. And I'm going to show you some figures because here's the take-home message. There's a big demographic transition happening, and it's part of what helps drive the revolution. And we're living at a time of another demographic transition where we're asking questions about what's the relationship between our expectations of childhood and how many actual living, breathing children we have, and our expectations of the contributions of older people and what their life possibilities are and how many living, breathing older people we have in the population. So, (laughs) before roughly the 18th century, if you look at portraiture of children, and remember this is all formal portraiture, right? It's expensive. It's (laughs) most people are only painted once in their lifetime in their finest clothes. So it's rare to find portraits of children. They're especially elite because they're going to be painted again as adults. You see very stiff, formal portraiture. And that fits with what we've been learning, right? Because what matters about a person uh, earlier, their status matters more than their age. Right? You can be a six-year-old king, and your status trumps the fact that you're six. And at some level, everybody understands you can't possibly actually be a functional king, so they appoint a regent. 
But still, you're the king at six. If blood lineage and fate led you to that moment. Status trumps age. That's changing in the 18th century. And with it, I would say, is a more romanticized, sentimentalized version of childhood. Can you see it in these photos? What do you, sorry, not photos, paintings. Do you see it in these paintings? What are these paintings telling you? First of all, if you look at the one on the right, she is wearing beautiful clothes, right? And they don't look comfortable to us. But she's somewhere between a mini adult in her dress and a child. But what is she doing? Does she have like a ribbon in her hand? She has like a ribbon. She's playing, right? Yeah, with the bird. We agree she's playing. Mm-hmm. The bird and the dog, which introduces the idea of pets. I think it's supposed to be an idyllic childhood scene and make her seem more natural. What about the one on the left after reading... Uh, the boys and girls in America, you should know something about this. Is that a boy or a girl? And on the left, in the blue. It's probably a boy. Why doesn't a dress tell you it's a girl? Because gender wasn't... Like clothing wasn't genderized really. At a young age, your clothing wasn't picked for your age, it was picked for your or no, your clothing wasn't picked for your gender, it was picked for your age. Right. Boys and girls wore dresses. And it was a big deal in the life of boys when they were breached, when they moved into pants. He's not old enough yet. I do know, by the chance, and I helpfully gave you the title, this is Thomas Aston Coffin, a real person, and he was indeed a man. He actually lives through the American Revolution. The story gets better. He becomes a loyalist, uh, resists the revolution, and has to flee to what's today Canada. And there's actually a little plaque to him in part of the historic section of Quebec City um, in what was the 18th century part of the town. There he is playing in his dress because he's too young. He too is supposed to be a sentimental child, I think. So, in what some of us may call the bad old days, most women before about 1750 in the United, what becomes the United States, black women, white women, Free women, enslaved women, all practice heightened natural fertility. They all conceive at least nine times in many cases, including early miscarriages. They can expect to still be having young children in their 30s and 40s. They can, many New England moms in particular, but all of them can expect 
1750 that you could have an oldest daughter marrying and having her first child at the same time you're giving birth to a child who is one of your later children, that you could be helping raise your youngest children and your grandchildren simultaneously and have a lot of children in between. Uh, They celebrate fertility. Um, And part of the rationale is they celebrate the ideal of fertility, period. You should people the nation. But part of it is, if you look at life expectancy at birth in the 18th century, it's horrible, right? Children die all the time. They die of all kinds of infectious diseases. In order to be sure that you will have some adult children, you have to have more children than you can reasonably expect to have lived to adulthood. They also still see children in an agricultural society as contributing to the family's overall purse. So, right, get them out in the fields, make them work. And they hold on to the family wealth to manipulate their children as they grow up. Chronological age, as we discussed with James Madison, doesn't mean you get to move out on your own and tell your parents to take a hike, you have an apartment now. Right? you got to hang on until you can get enough land from them to be independent. But around 1750, things start to change. Life expectancy had been gradually climbing for children. And married people around the time of the American Revolution start to practice birth control. And remember, they don't have a hormonal birth control pill. They can just swallow every day. You can't put something in your arm and leave it for five years. They know about condoms, but they don't really use them. They're considered something that only prostitutes use. They find other ways, men and women together, to control how many children they have. But you see it, and it's dramatic. And I'm going to show you in a minute. The birth rates start to fall around the time of the American Revolution. The highest birth rates in American history come about 1750. Now, who wants to do the math? 1750 to 1776. A whole bunch of restive 16-year-olds in the biggest baby boom yet in a youthful society are looking to come of age at the time the revolution breaks out. But behind them will come a baby bust because women will sit up one day and say, huh... I believe in these enlightenment values at the heart of the revolution that we're all imbibing, that all of us are, if not truly equal, valuable, that our time is valuable. Why should I just be a baby-making machine? Maybe I want to have my children young, be done by 35, which is what they actually do uh, for a bunch of reasons, and treasure my life as well as my children's. And you can see it playing out. At the same time, they start to not only sentimentalize these children that they have, but as more children survive, and as a huge baby boom gives way to a baby bust, there's a new attitude towards children. Uh, Not only are parents increasingly affectionate, they're increasingly permissive. What used to be strongly 
chastised, and their children sometimes just makes them laugh by 1800. They see it as children being children rather than children being disobedient or uninterested in God's message. Um, This is a portrait of the Copley family. And what do you notice? For starters, where are the children? Right, so there's this little cherub-looking baby, nice and chubby, right? Chubby and healthy. And then there's this one, also chubby little cheeks. And what's the relationship between these two children and this woman? Like, how are they interacting with each other? Yeah, they're showing affection. Kiss, kiss, kiss. If you change the clothes, could this be a photograph? If you just took them, could this be a photograph of a mother and her kid today? I need to give you a kiss. Yeah. You would not have seen anything like this before. Right? This is the sentimental, affectionate family. The emphasis is on the love and connection. Even this child who is old enough, by the way, to definitely be a girl in a dress. Now what's going on here? Oh, there's another delightful little chubby baby. But what's her relationship with him? It's just like she, you know, she kind of play or gain attention, but he's kind of like serious. He's holding her, so he's not dropping her, right? And you can see both arms, but he's looking seriously at the painter. She, however, thinks that he should play with her. Who do you think he is in relationship to the children? Family relationship. The grandfather. You're absolutely right, and that is who he is. This is the father. He is also the painter. If you ever go to Boston, Copley Square, (laughs) he is from that family originally. Uh, His name is John Singleton Copley. He's a famous painter. And he's also a loyalist in the American Revolution who has to leave and go to Britain. And this is the portrait he paints of his family. And I find it fascinating. The children are literally in the center of the portrait. We talk about the child-centered family, right? And sometimes therapists say, parents, you matter too. Don't let your child run everything. Then they tell you to make sure you give your children enough quality time all the time. Mixed messaging much. This is the child-centered family already at the end of the 18th century. And even though John Singleton Copley ends up as a loyalist and flees to Britain with his family, he is in many ways sympathetic with the same Enlightenment ideals that motivate the revolution. And I think you can see it in this painting, right? This is the vision of how children fit into the family, how children and childhood should be nurtured as an ideal time in life. Oh, natural time. These children are supposed to be more naturalistic. 
And driving it are new ideologies of what children should be that are very much part of the Enlightenment ideals of the revolution. So if you look at the bottom of this screen, John Locke, right, who gives us ideas like the consent of the governed, which is at the heart of the Declaration of Independence and is at the heart of our ideals of the Constitution that we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, give our consent to our elected government. He has an idea about children, too. Children are just a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And their parents, right, would write on them through carefully thought-out, planned-out child-rearing to craft and shape their children into the right kind of adult. For those of you who think of today's debate on nature versus nurture, right, this is the nurture debate. This, is, this idea is that children are 100% nurture. You can shape them any way you want. By the way, I'm the parent of young children. No way, right? No way. There are things I definitely can't make my children do, and I cannot change them. But then I live in a different time with different ideology. So I asked this question, what modern theories of child-rearing did your parents have to shape you into the kind of adults who are going to get into JMU and show up to classes without your mother or father getting you out of bed and making you come? Just um, general accountability. Like, um, kind of like, once I got to high school, you know, saying, you know, it's the age where you, like, I don't have to come in your room and wake you up, you know, <laughs> or, you like, you, you can now set an alarm clock and not miss the bus. So it's just, you know, gradually to kind of, like, loosen the rope, but not, you know, completely let go to let them know that, you know, you're kind of still there, but it's time to be gradually start getting more independent. Absolutely. And who wants to help Amaya out? Because she's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting so far in this class. Liam has also spoken. I'll give you credit. I personally, my parents, like, or my mom, she would like wake me up every morning, like even in high school, and like make me breakfast and lunch. So I was like so worried about coming to college because I was like, I've been relying on it so much, but I guess you got to figure it out. <laughs> Do your parents value independence in you? Did they value it when you were younger? Right. Logically, if you're going to have an independent 18-year-old, and we've talked about this, right? Remember Paula Fass's arguments about American parents for centuries have privileged independence. Uh, our children should grow up to be independent beings. So how do you do that? You give them more and more independence at a young age. You turn them loose. You give up power and control so that your children can take independent power and control. And you hope for the best. And remember, we've read, now more and more American parents are doubting whether that's the right strategy. So you've heard of helicopter parents, the pejorative term for parents who come and fix all the problems such that we now realize the psychological effect of this is that children come to believe 
they can't solve any of their problems on their own and their, their parents don't trust them. Why should they trust themselves? They can't be efficacious in the world. Turns out to have a serious downside, right? And then we have the name Black Hawk parents, parents who take helicopter parenting and times 10, right? And they Black Hawk down at the least sign of trouble and, you know, Uzi everyone and then survey the damage. We have ideas about child rearing. They have ideas about child rearing. And it's this very enlightenment ideal. We have some children. We don't have as many anymore, but we raise them to be naturalistic and in line with their own take on the world. And we give them a lot of independence and we wish for the best. And I told you, I'd prove to you there's a demographic transition. So here we see various lines for American or United States populations. Notice they're all cresting around 1760. We're now less than two decades away from the American Revolution. And then look at how they start to fall precipitously. In every group except black Americans, who crest later. Now remember that while not all of those people are enslaved, a huge percentage of them are enslaved. And their reproductive lives are not entirely in their control. So why that might not change as fast makes sense to us when we realize that masters often promote the forced fertility of black women because they see it as a net profit. Another way of putting this is everybody who has a good amount of control over their own fertility, together, rural, urban, start to peak around 1760 and fall dramatically. So we've got a baby boom followed by a baby bust, and lo and behold, that last generation of the baby boom, they're our revolutionaries. Right? They're not, they're restive, they cause a revolution, they're young, they have young leaders. This isn't some old folks revolution. And then there's a baby bust, and society goes through a demographic transition. So, <laughs> what happens after you have the youth quake? Right? The young revolution. Well, first of all, Americans talk about their own country as the infant republic or the young republic. Uh, you do a word searches. for You see it everywhere. Uh, just before I put this together, I did a word search in the Founders Online, which is the Library of Congress has this huge free resource where they've digitized and typed up all of the Founding Fathers' letters. It's a huge database. Type in infant republic and you get a hit from... Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. Type in Young Republic, and you get like 9,000 hits. This is a French um, image celebrating the American Revolution from the early 1780s. And how do they portray America? <laughs> what do you literally see? This is America. Taking care of their babies. 
Right, she's suckling. They would have said suckling. We would say nursing her babies, literally. Uh, we, she's supposed to be America. What I think why some of you are quiet is because you're uncomfortable figuring out what to say about this image. Is that fair? Because she's dressed as a Native American, and they're using a Native American woman to stand who's very naked, right? Has this little dress over her lower privates and is suckling these infants. Um, as an aside, they're struggling with how do you represent a country, a new infant republic, that comes from lots of people who are English or German. What kind of iconography shows Americanness? And they all adopt Native Americans as an iconography that explains that. But look, suckling infants. I got a weirder one for you. This one. The top is celebrating General Nathaniel Green, who helped win the American Revolution. Um, he was commander in the South. But what's that thing on the bottom? I made it easier for you. <laughs> this is what's at the bottom. We, yeah. A young woman, possibly Native American, certainly naked and rather Venus Aphrodite-esque, <laughs> probably modeled on that kind of thing in European. And once again, she's suckling infants. And this is the image you see to represent the very youthful new United States again and again. Whereas, this is King George III. 1817. Monarchy often gets depicted as aged, just as Americans rejected monarchy, right? They reject it as past its time, quite literally. The one to the right is a 19th century image, and it's trying to celebrate the idea that this was an intergenerational revolution, that wizened old seniors fought alongside little boys to bring independence and liberty to the United States. They're playing with all kinds of ideas about generation and the revolution, generation and what this country is. Which brings me to old age. I promised I'd get there. So what's the other thing that people who haven't taken this class think? There were almost no old people back then. Didn't they all die? Have any of your family members said that to you when you're taking this class? <laughs> My family members say it to me, and I have a PhD in history. It doesn't really matter. Definitive proof. This shows changing lifespan over time. And you can see, right, that around the time of the revolution, we actually get a peak in life expectancy, sitting in the high 60s. And it's in the beginning of industrialization and massive expansion of the United States with dirty canal building that's going to drive it down. And then it'll go back up. Did people live to a ripe old age? Absolutely. Here's another way to show it. 
I know this is a really busy looking graph, but it's showing you the average age at death for what are, we would call little micro cohorts. Um, but you can see they're all clustering here around 70 to 75. These, believe me, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm showing you. If you're curious, what you're actually looking at is a team based out of Israel uh, used, found a way to create a huge data set and used big data science to analyze it for life expectancy and dates of death. Part of what they're trying to show is not only my point, life expectancy was much longer, much more consistently in this period. And yes, that means we have a lot of older people. But they're trying to show that micro changes over time could change how long you lived based on conditions when you're relatively young. So we come back to our first president, George Washington, and our vision of him as an old man. And we come back to the question of who looks presidential and why that's been so relevant recently. So were they old when they became president? I'll tell you 60 is considered the beginning of old age in the 18th century. Uh, Cotton Mather said it. Lots of other people say in their diary as they reach their late 50s, oh, I'm cresting the hill and I can see the valley sweeping out below me. Look at when they take the presidency. Would we properly call these old men or would we properly call them something else? I helpfully have their age at death, too, so you can tell how long they live after first assuming the presidency. I think nowadays we would say, especially with the age of assuming presidency, with like late 50s, early 60s, it might be like maybe later middle age, but still kind of middle age, not necessarily like old, old. Because like, when they die, that's considered old, I guess. Right, yeah. So 90 is still a very good life expectancy. It is, by the way, greater than the average life expectancy for men or women who reach age 65 today. While it's not unheard of to see 90-year-olds, it's still rare. Um, but look, Jefferson and Madison both live into their 80s. George Washington looks like an early dyer here, which he's intensely afraid of, by the way. Uh, because he's still the most long-lived man in his family, and, and he keeps this in his records, right? I've now passed the age when this relative died. Now I've passed the age where this relative died, and then finally, I've now outlived all the men in my family. And he's like, my time is coming soon. Um, we're not, this country did not elect old men as president. It elected people in late middle age. And you can see that consistent pattern. And many of them live not only long enough to serve two terms of four years, but to comfortably outlive that. Washington's an outlier. He dies two years after leaving the presidency. Um, but right, we're electing people who, and the bet seems to be that they have the wisdom that's often associated with age by late middle age, but they also have some of the youthful vitality, 
Another thing we're newly aware of here in 2021, the ability of their immune systems to repel infectious disease, which is a constant problem in the 18th century. George Washington reassured people because he'd outlived almost every infectious disease that was common by the time he took the presidency. Um, Andrew Jackson, who's seen as the wave of youth, is actually not that young. And this pattern continues until the ninth president, William Henry Harrison, who takes the presidency at 68 years old. And if you ever need a trivia fact, he gets cold, giving an address, celebrating. It turns into pneumonia, and then he dies. And after that, early Americans stop electing presidents that old and go back to their pattern of choosing and elevating people largely in the second half of their 50s. So it's been interesting this election season when people would say, with this implicit idea the founders as old men, I think, right, in their photographs, oh, we've always had aged, wisdom-driven leadership. Well, no, our founding fathers actually didn't choose that, and the voters didn't choose that. When Harrison ran, his age was a campaign issue. As one of his opponents said, if you give him some hard cider and give him a pension, right, he'll stop running for president and go away. Did they care about age? Yes. Did they worry that some people were too old for political office, let alone responsibility? Yes. So we have founders with very mixed ideas about old age, even as they get old. They're obsessed with longevity. The image on the left is one of many books that would give you prescriptions for how to live a healthy and long life. I chose this one because it was widely reprinted in the colonies and then the new United States. It was in the library of many early Americans. It was widely read. They're obsessed in some ways, just like some people are obsessed now. However, humorously, they don't agree on what you should do. Um, there are prescriptions for diet. Um, maybe you should eat and drink abstemiously, not too much rich food or too much food in general, what we would call calorie limitation. And there are some I've read, and I've read many of these, that look like prescriptions for just moderate eating, what we would say. There are others that, to me, read very much like calorie limitation. Um, I haven't tried to quantify exactly how much. But as you may know, there have been studies that if you limit the calories of mice, poor lab mice, right? People do all this stuff to them. If you limit their calories and you give them one-third less than their daily required calories, they actually, it does improve the lifespan. They do live longer. And there are now some people who are trying this, self-experimenting on themselves as humans, reasoning that if it works on mice, it might work on them, and they're deliberately eating one-third less than your daily required calories. Um, and there are pictures of them, videos of them measuring every morsel, and these aren't just the people on keto diets, right? These are the people who are like, I'm going to practice extreme calorie limitation for years in the hope that it will improve my lifespan. 
Um, others suggest you shouldn't drink too much. A lot of people read this in the 18th century. A lot fewer actually do it. Right? <laughs> they just keep drinking and they complain. And then there's ones, and this is my favorite example. Maybe bathing or particular rituals will keep you alive, alive a long time. So Benjamin Franklin takes an air bath every day where he gets naked and sits with all the windows open for at least 30 minutes, and he calls it his air bath. But he also says you should plunge your feet into hot water every day, and that will help give you a long life. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, insists that you should plunge your feet into cold water every day, and he does that, and that'll give you a long life. By the way, it can't possibly be both, can it? And that'll show you the sort of haphazard, hopeful nature of these kinds of recommendations. They monitor themselves and understand themselves as old men and associate that with a raft of characteristics, some of which they think are good and many of which they want to avoid. Um, so here's Benjamin Franklin again, and this is a quote from the beginning of his autobiography. And he essentially says, you'll excuse me for writing an autobiography. To be fair, he's being a little tongue-in-cheek, right? A lot of people actually want to read his autobiography. He's an incredible celebrity. But he says, you know, I'm just writing this to indulge the inclination that's so natural in old men to be talking of themselves. Right? There's a, an idea about old men widely shared by his culture so much he can laugh about it and rip off it. And say, and that's why I'm writing this autobiography. So what could be the, if you live a long life, what kind of satisfactions might be there for you? Um, because Benjamin Franklin says old men like to talk about themselves, but nobody else wants to listen is kind of the implicit understanding here, right? This is George Mason. Got another Virginia University named for him, but of course we're pro-James Madison here, right? At my time of life, my only satisfaction and pleasure is in my children. And all my views are centered in their happiness. His children are adults at the time he writes them this. So live through your children. Some children are happier to be lived through than others. This could mean anything from be happy to keep hearing about your children. And one of my absolute favorite quotes I found in the archive is from a woman who writes her adult son. And what she's upset is that her adult son uh, hasn't been writing to her very often and has been writing very short business-like letters. And she says, you know, essentially include me in your life. Hearing about your life and my grandchildren is what makes... Me feel connected is what makes me feel part of your life, gives me pleasure. And then she says, people do not lose their curiosity with age. By curiosity, I think she really means their quest for human connection. And she says essentially to her adult son, I don't think, by the way, she's trying to be controlling. She's trying to say, don't shut me out. 
I think George Washington, uh, sorry, George Mason means some of the same things because in many letters he talks about making sure there's money for his adult children and for their children's needs. But this could be a double-edged sword, we could agree, right? And it's kind of an uncomfortable counterpoint to what we've been saying about how much uh, Americans, at least before the last 30 years, valued independence in their children. He values it, but... He's got to think about his children all the time. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson say, maybe the greatest joy in old age is grandchildren. That should sound familiar too, right? And you get this beautiful sentiment. And, and they're sharing with each other. 1817, late in life, you and I have had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And although sometimes it's trying to have children, John Adams had a son who died of alcoholism. He had a daughter who died of breast cancer. He had another son who became president. <laughs> so a very mixed bag. Thomas Jefferson had a daughter who died young in early adulthood. Thomas Jefferson had another daughter whose marriage failed and she moved home with him to get away from her husband. Right, and so they're thinking, children, you can live through them, but you have to live with their disappointments. They give us anxiety, often vexation, and sometimes humiliation. Mm -hmm. Yet it has been cheering to have them hovering about us. So there's something not only about knowing you have children and grandchildren, but having daily contact with people who are younger than you and who care about you. That's kind of how I'd read that. And I verily believe they have contributed largely to keep us alive. <laughs> he even, we can get upset about this part, he even goes on in another letter to say, poor James Madison, we have grandchildren, but he doesn't. <laughs> so sad. He doesn't have this wonderful thing keeping us alive and lively. They even start to become afraid of new things, like dementia, or what John Adams calls dying at the top. And let's face it, Alzheimer's is one of the most feared diseases. Dying of heart disease isn't actually that much fun either. And it's wrenching for those who love you. Dying of cancer is wrenching for just about everybody. And cancer, we fear it too. But Alzheimer's has a hold on our imagination. And it turns out it had it on them too. So much so that they sometimes say it would be better to be dead than to be living with dementia. This is two brothers writing to each other about their father in his 90s. And what one says is, you know, if you're a friend to him, if you care about him, you can't wish for a continuance of this existence. Another place Thomas Jefferson calls it no better than the life of a cabbage. And how many times have we heard people today talk about they're just vegetables? Especially in debates about 
preserving life through technological means we have now. That idea has a long history, and you see it popping up in the American Revolution. I don't actually see this much before 1750. And then I start to see it exploding among Enlightenment thinkers. This idea that life is wonderful, long life is wonderful, but it's not worth it with dementia. That they privilege the mind, right? They say Enlightenment men should be learned people, constantly reading. And if you can't do that, what good are you? And so something that is on one hand so life-affirming, so liberal, and by that I mean little L liberal, the liberal tradition, uh, can also be so anti-human and so devastating. Even Thomas Jefferson hops on the train. Uh, This is one of his friends writing to him about a shared acquaintance and sort of making fun of, I visited him and he's out of his mind. He's so forgetful that all he can do is play games that children play. Well, great. How many of you were thinking, well, don't bother visiting me. You feel that way about me. Don't come back. And last, but certainly not least, they're obsessed with their own legacies. And there's some sense that this is universal too. That there's research today that people who make it to about 70, which means in American contemporary lifespan, likelihoods, probabilities, they have another 10 to 15 years to go, begin to think about how to craft a legacy that will outlive them. It's a sense of dealing with their own oncoming but not yet eminent mortality. Um, Now, not all people are going to have a legacy like the founders, right? Some are concerned with, and some of you may have grandparents in this stage, how do I tell my family stories and share my values with my children and grandchildren, especially my grandchildren who I didn't raise, and pass on those family stories and make sure my values are passed on to my grandchildren about what matters in life now that I've lived a long life. Um, That's another kind of legacy project. Um, The founders, of course, many of them, they don't become famous entirely by accident. Yes, they've done amazing things, but they make sure everyone knows about it. I chose this because it kind of jokes about it, right? There's Franklin and Washington. And Franklin's congratulating Washington. Isn't it awesome? The Capitol's always going to be named after you. You're going to be famous forever. And what does Washington say? Mixed blessing, right? To be honest... In the future, I'd rather people say, nothing gets done in Franklin. But I'll tell you, George Washington was actually obsessed with his legacy. He wanted to make sure he controlled where he was buried so people wouldn't forget him. It didn't work out the way he thought, so he's buried at Mount Vernon to this day. But he wanted to be buried in the Capitol building. Underneath the rotunda. You know who's buried in official, beautiful buildings? 
kings and queens. If you go to Europe, right, and you go to the big cathedral, who's under all the floorboards? Kings and queens and occasionally poets. And that's what Washington saw. He said the rotunda, he thought, is sort of our secular cathedral of the vision of our revolution. And that's where I want my body. Problem is he can't say that out loud because it seems presumptuous and overly um, self-promoting. And because he can't say it aloud, it ends up not happening. But it's not for lack of trying. So I've suggested the American Revolution happens at a time of deep demographic transition, that it's a young revolution, not an old revolution, and that we've misunderstood it because our pictures of the founders that have sort of sunk deep into our psyches are of old people, old men. And that they lived at a time when there was a burst of young people trying to establish themselves and prove themselves, and smaller generations came behind them. When there are fewer babies being born, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that older people are a relatively higher percentage of the population when there's a sudden baby bust, right? And part of, I think, the denigration of the experiences of the elderly that happens is because suddenly there's more of them relative to the population. And eventually, demographic transitions work themselves out in the sense that people get used to these expectations. Except, as you know, we're living through another demographic transition moment. Not just in the United States, although we're definitely living through one in the United States, but in the world. Um, So I'm a historian. I know the past. I don't know the future. But this is suggestive. Not only... Has our population fallen since the 50s? But it continues to fall. What's an ideal family size for lots of Americans? How many children? I'm not going to put you on the spot, but how many children seems ideal to a lot of Americans today? Two or three. Two, sometimes three. The two seems, right? The boy, the girl, the dog, the parents. You can buy a lot of decals for the back of the car with that. Fertility has started falling faster in the United States since the Great Recession. That's what this is showing us. If you used fertility trends even right before the Great Recession, look at how many more babies there would be in the United States now. And as we know, and we're shooting this during COVID, some people who hadn't thought about it much said, oh, there'll be another baby boom because of COVID, because all those bored couples will be stuck at home procreating. Mm -hmm. Not how it's happening. First of all, the joke among parents was maybe, but only for parents of first children. Everybody else stuck at home with small children was like, oh, don't add another thing to my plate. Right? But also, as this suggests, do people have lots of babies during uncertain economic times? And the answer is no. The Great Depression was another great baby bust in American history. People with any control over their fertility generally don't bring children into this world who they're not sure 
whether they can support them. Babies starved to death in the Great Depression, right? There was a reason people were terrified. Thankfully, not all of us are in quite as bad a situation as we were in the 1930s, but still, we're living through an accelerating baby bust, what may be a permanent change. And we're not the only ones. On the top right is a propaganda poster from China celebrating the one-child mandate. And so you see the two parents with one grandparent and one grandchild, symbolizing a nice, compact family structure. Um, China has lifted the one-child policy, and they still can't get the birth rate up because a lot of people no longer desire more than one child or think it's possible for them to raise more than one child. And it's not just China. That's why I chose the stock photo at the bottom. Increasingly, people around the world sentimentalize and work to achieve the one-child family. Even if an American still often think of the two-child family, increasingly you see uh, the one-child family as the norm around the industrialized world. And here are some statistics about just how fast the Great Recession and now COVID has changed our future. So I bring it around to this at the end, right? The American Revolution isn't exactly what we think it is. Because we've allowed portraiture and lazy assumptions to have us miss the reality that it was a youthful revolution. And it came out of a time of demographic transition where the relative ratio of old to young was changing when you had a bumper crop of restful youth or what the Iranian government is currently terrified of today. Uh, Places with very youthful populations are often terrified of how to keep them employed and happy enough that they don't seek to change the fundamentals of society, a.k.a. a revolution. Um, We're living through another demographic transition. We don't know what will change. I personally would prefer not to live through a violent revolution, but it's an open question, right? Demographic transitions can set off all kinds of consequences as things work themselves out. And here we are, and it seems both far ago and suddenly relevant again. Thank you, guys. And thank you for hanging in for an amazing semester. So that's where I'm going to end. But I can take my intrepid students who've made it through this semester. What do you think you're going to take away from this class in general? Just think about how... um age is, you know, can be defined as many things uh, depending on, like, the time period or just how it has evolved because, you know, kind of, like, present day, like, especially, you know, kind of generalized, you know, age was always the same thing. Well, of course, we didn't live through that time or, you know, we're not educated about how age was actually different 
from what it is today. And then sometimes it's like the complete opposite of what it is today. So yeah, that's found that most interesting. How many of you aren't going to look at the toy aisle again the same way after hearing each other's research presentations? I think something that I found interesting was just how with age and people over time, we're all really have been the same. Like little kids in the early 1900s that still play like kids today. So I found that interesting. Yeah, thanks. Unfair question. Would you recommend this class to your friends? Yeah. Say, there's more than you think. <laughs> it's more complicated than you think. Do you hear any phrases in the news or see things on TikTok and think about it differently now? Just run into something in culture? Any, any examples, Christina? Um, I guess just the way that people think about generations now. I think people think there's like, it's like a new thing that there's so much division between generations uh, and that we'll never agree on anything. But it's interesting just hearing this presentation and what we've learned throughout all of the classes that there have always been differences between generations. And like, I was thinking at the beginning of this, like, at the turn of, um, from like the 1800s to the 1900s, there was so much change going on that a lot of the stress was going on to like generations in the future. And I feel like even now today, there's change happens so quickly. So it, it makes sense to me that why there's so much stress and anxiety around what are we going to do with generations go on. In fact, I saw an article in the paper just this week, uh, I think in the Atlantic, but I'm not sure. Millennials, why aren't they growing up? It's economic, not a new stage of life. And we come back to some of Amaya's points about, you know, what your expectations are of your political leadership. I don't know about you, but I've got student loans. Some of you are nodding, you do too. It's so hard to explain student loans to somebody who didn't have student loans that shaped their adult life, like what that is, um, right? There's an example of a generational misunderstanding that's in politics today that I often think about. If there were one thing you wanted other people to take away from hearing this that you caught on to because you've had this class, what would it be? What should they know about Asian America generally? I guess I would say, um, actually, this is one of the essay prompts for age. It's not just a number. <laughs> age is not just <laughs> age. Is, I don't think it's, you know, it's just a number. You know, it's more than that, you know, especially how, you know, age can be put in different type of categories or just, you know, just different everything. So, you know, age, I feel like it's just, of course, a number because we feel like, that's how we organize ourselves. But outside of that, just having that number or label, you know, is much more than that. 
Thank you. And thank you guys for everything. We have reached the end of our class period and the end of our classes. Big clapping for you guys. Lectures in History is a weekly podcast taking you to the classrooms of some of the country's leading universities. Thanks for listening. You might also be interested in our newest C-SPAN podcast, Book Notes Plus. Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.